0: Last week I started a series, uh, or I started a lesson on Masterclass in Prayer, and, and Jesus said so much about prayer, and he said so many different things about prayer, I, I just realized I had to break it in two, uh, or as Jeremy says, preach for three hours, so I chose uh, to break it in two. So tonight is the second section of that, and if you uh, have your Bibles, you may want to turn over there to Luke 11, where we read today, or you may want to be turning to Luke 18, which is another place. We're gonna go and we'll go to one other main scripture too. Before I get going, I kinda of wanna perform a little, uh, unprofessional or non-professional psychological experiment. I'm going to say a phrase and I want you to tell me what comes to your mind when I say this phrase. Okay? We don't talk anymore. Say what? Okay, we text instead of talking. Yeah. Okay. A couple who has drifted apart or fought themselves apart. Yeah. That's not you guys. Just a lack of, yeah, a lapse and, and loss of communication, or at least a loss of phone number. Say what? Is there a song about that? You're kidding. Is it is it country-western? Because it sounds sad to me. <laughs> you know what happens if you play country-western music backwards? You get your wife back, you get a job, and your dog comes back to life, apparently. We don't talk anymore... Means that some relationship somewhere is dying or already dead. I mean, that's kind of what we, what we associate with relationships. And, and as we think about the things Jesus said, He says a lot of specifics about prayer. I kind of want you to hear the message behind His messages, which is that if you want to be close to God, there's no shortcut around talking to Him. Jesus wants you to talk to God. He wants you to have regular and engaged prayer life. Regular, that is you do it frequently, and engaged prayer life. Let me perform a second psychological experiment just to to illustrate this. Can you think of a really fun conversation with somebody that you're pretty close to that you've had recently. And you think and you call a conversation to mind where you guys just talked about a bunch of stuff. Can you? Name ten topics that you covered. In that interest, I mean, I I did this on myself and, and I can probably, if I work at it, think about what we talked about But what we talked about is not what made that fun for me. And I suggest that's probably true for you as well. There is something that happens when I talk to someone that creates intimacy separate and apart from the intellectual content of the words that were exchanged. And I want you to hear the message behind the messages Jesus gives about prayer. He wants you to be intimate with God the Father. And one of the key ways in which intimacy is created and maintained with God the Father is to pray to him. He wants you to have a regular and engaged prayer life. And so let's look at some of the other things that Jesus said about that. We talked about uh, some of the things he said last week, and I want to talk uh, some more this week. If you have your Bibles, uh, let's go over to chapter 18 first, Luke 18, the first Eight verses. Luke chapter 18, the first eight verses. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not lose heart. And he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. And in that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for humans, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so she may not wear me out with her continual coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust Judge says, and will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's a neat story. It's full of the kind of ironies that Jesus apparently was himself attracted to and that attracted others to the way he talked. What's ironic about the picture that we have? What's the social status of a judge? Even in our culture, what's the social status of a judge? If I, if you're at a party and someone introduces you to, oh, and and this is, uh, you know, uh, Judge Caldwell, what does that tell you? Unless that happens to be his first name, what does that tell you? This is somebody who has prestige, right, somebody who has status. And that is that is doubly or triply true in the first century when the status differences were kind of more pronounced even than they are in our society. Uh, so here is a judge. This is a person who would have been both a religious and political authority figure in the community. And, and we're told, furthermore, it's a person who's very cynical about their prestige and their status in the community because they don't care what God says. and They don't care what human beings say either. They feel very secure, secure enough to not even care that much about justice. Here's a judge, the worst kind of judge, a judge who's so secure in their right to give judgments that they no longer care what's even correct or what God or human beings want. What's the social status of a widow? Especially in that first century society, what's her social status? Yeah, yeah, much worse than now, although widows also have have, uh, difficulties now. But back then, uh, you know, you, if you were a woman, you didn't have legal standing. Uh, You didn't have legal standing to equal even the lowest status man and so her ability to get a hearing in court, her ability to press a suit, once she got a hearing in court, her ability to actually get the judge to act, all of those things, that's the whole reason Jesus tells the story is because the status gap and the power gap is so big and yet who wins? Who the widow beats the judge and that's what's funny about it. Everybody's kind of uh, kind of nodding and smiling because it's such a funny picture. The widow wins, she gets victory over the judge. And why? And why? Because she keeps on asking. She will not quit. And that's the point of the parable. That's the point of the parable. If prayer is real, if prayer is real, then we keep on asking. For the things that we need. That's a little ironic, admittedly, because last week uh, we talked about where Jesus said, Now when you pray, don't pray like the pagans who who think they're going to be heard because they keep repeating themselves. And so now here he says, this widow, she, uh, she got what she wanted by being persistent, and you need to pray like that too. How do we balance those two teachings of Jesus? Don't just... Repeat phrases over and over again. That's not going to make God more likely to hear you. God already knows what you need before you even ask. And over here we say, but be like the widow who is persistent in prayer. How do we balance those two? How do we understand those two? I think the message behind the message has to do with how engaged you are. The pagans, one of the things that's wrong with that pagan mode of prayer that Jesus was criticizing is, once I've got the correct phrases to repeat, I don't even have to think about it anymore. I can just say my prayers over and over again, and, and I can be thinking about totally other things. And he says, that doesn't build intimacy. That's just a rote practice. That doesn't draw you any closer to God. That doesn't build a relationship. But if you are on your knees asking for God to intervene, Whether God says yes or no, if you are on your knees, seriously, emotionally engaged in what's going on, you are in the process also doing this other thing that Jesus cares very much about, which is building intimacy with God. Jesus wants you to have a regular and engaged prayer life. He does not want you to let this slip. He does not want you to neglect it. He wants for you to be healthy in your relationship with God. He wants you to have a regular and engaged prayer life. Same basic idea is in this story that we have in chapter 11. Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, starts in verse 5. Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three... A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of love, yet because of your shameless asking, he will surely get up and give you what you need. That's that's another one of those funny stories. And Jesus intended it to be ironic and to be funny. And he says prayer has to be heartfelt. Prayer has to be persistent. And we know that God is far too wise to say yes to everything we pray for. Have you ever been really, really glad that God said no to a prayer of yours? Oh my goodness. Some of the, I mean it's not that I had insincere prayers i just had foolish prayers and many of them in my life and i am grateful that god does not just say sure you prayed it i'm going to do it doesn't matter how disastrous it's going to be i am grateful that god's wisdom is answering prayers according to his wisdom and and i if i'm engaged in prayer if i'm aware of who god is that i'm talking to i'm aware of that fact too god don't don't give me something that's going to be horrible That's part of what we mean when we pray God's will be done. But at the same time, Jesus says in both of these parables, God responds to persistent prayer. God responds to persistent prayer. He responds to a prayer which is heartfelt and repeated in ways that will Blow our minds in ways that will surprise and stun us, that can turn our world upside down. God responds to persistent prayer. He will give justice. Jesus goes on a little bit later in this context and says, you guys know how to give good gifts to your own children. You wouldn't turn around and give a snake or a stone to a child who is asking for something. Don't you think God Wants to give you good things. God responds to persistent prayer. In Luke's telling, I like Luke's telling because he says, Don't you think God will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? In Matthew's telling, when Jesus told it in that context, he said, Give good things. But, But in Luke, it's specifically... Won't God give the Holy Spirit to those who are asking? The Holy Spirit is the means by which we have intimacy with God. It is the mediator that allows us to have intimacy and love with God. And your prayer life is key to you having intimacy with God, to God being alive in your life. Jesus wants you to have a regular and engaged prayer life. That is part of what it means for you to be a healthy, functioning Christian. Go back to Luke 18, and let's read the second story that Jesus tells in that context. Luke 18, look at verse 9 and following. He also told this parable about some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went out to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Well, we already have one of Jesus' ironic situations. What's the social status and religious status of these two people? If you know anything about the first century, what do you know about the, what, just looking at these two men praying in the temple what's their social and religious status one is esteemed as a religious pious righteous person the other one is despised as a traitor as a collaborator with the idolaters as someone who has is helping a foreign power control and and oppress God's people in their own land. The tax collectors are viewed as just the lowest of the low traders. And the Pharisees are viewed by many as the best of human beings, the most righteous, the most law-keeping. So Jesus has already set that up for you in your mind, and then he tells the story. He says, the Pharisee began praying to himself thus, or standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you. It's a good way to start. Being thankful. What's he thankful for? I thank you that I am not like other people. Thieves. Rogues. Adulterers. Even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. The tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven. But was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. What's Jesus telling us in this parable? Of course, he gives you his moral, that the, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. What went wrong with the Pharisees' prayer? Is it a good thing to do the things the Pharisee boasts about? Not to be a robber? Not to be a rogue? Not to be like the tax collector who's a traitor? Yeah? Those are kind of in the positive categories, right? Not to be an adulterer? Yeah? That's a positive category. To fast twice? A, that seems like a very righteous thing to do. That seems like the right kind of thing to do. And so forth and so forth. I mean, the, what the Pharisees talking about are all good things. What went wrong with his prayer? Say what? Yeah, Yodi said under her breath up here, who was he even praying to? and you said he wanted to boast, if you knew if you really were thinking about who God is when you pray, could you pray the prayer he just prayed? If you're thinking about who God is, can you pray a prayer which at best, I mean, it lists good things, but at best they are relative good things. I am am better than adulterers. I am better than people who only pray once, or fast once a week. You know, it's a, I am comparing myself to other people. Was the Pharisee even aware that there's a God who was hearing him? To me, I think one of the messages behind the message of the, this parable, which is very familiar to us, the Pharisee and the tax collector, is the same message. This is a disengaged prayer. That's what's wrong with the Pharisee's prayer. It is a disengaged prayer. In his mind, what he is praying about has nothing much to do with the actual God. It has to do with him having an occasion to list off the ways that he is satisfied with where he is religiously when he compares himself to other people. What happens when you... Actually, when, when, when you actually start to become aware of who God really is and your prayers begin to include Him emotionally. What's that like? When Isaiah, when the clouds part for him and he's able to see God in his temple and he sees these beings surrounding the temple of God, the throne of God, Each one of those beings is so glorious and so powerful that if you saw it by itself, you would be tempted to worship it. And each one of those beings is instead focusing worship on the one who's on the throne, saying, holy, holy, holy. What's Isaiah's response in that moment? You remember Isaiah chapter 6? Woe is me! Who in these two prayers has actually caught a vision of the real God. It's clearly the tax collector because that's what he says. Woe is me. Woe is because I am sinful. God wants you to pray to Him. He wants you to have regular and engaged prayer life. Jesus wants that for you as well. And and He wants you to pray every day. He wants you to pray several times every day. He wants this to be just part of something that becomes your routine. It's as, it's as common as breathing. All of those things are true. And at the same time, He never wants you to forget the Holy God that you're in contact with when you pray. It's an amazing... I mean... Isaiah, in order to allow the conversation to continue, has to have his lips seared with a live coal. I've never kissed the fire. I don't want to have that experience. But for Isaiah, that was a relief when he was in the presence of God. God is incredibly holy. The God that you and I pray to hopefully several times a day, is incredibly holy. He can't even stand to be in the presence of wickedness. And here I am being allowed to talk to him. How is that even possible? The answer for Christians is it's only possible because of our high priest, Jesus Christ, taking the blood into the actual presence of God and cleansing us so that we have confidence to enter into the presence of God ourselves. An engaged prayer is always aware of where we stand morally. It is always aware of who it is, the holiness of the one to whom we are speaking, and yet it speaks anyway in confidence because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I love that story because it mattered to Jesus that we always be aware of who God is. I want you to turn out of the Gospel of Luke and turn over to the Gospel of Mark. Turn over to Mark chapter 14, the last point I want to make tonight in our master's class on prayer. Look at verse 32 and following. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell up to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And as the story progresses, he goes back, he finds those three intimates of his, Peter, James, John, they've fallen asleep, they are drowsy, and he says, you know, be strong. Watch with me. He goes back, he prays again, much in the same way. Comes back, goes back again. Again, his, his followers are, are weak. And he goes back and he prays once again. Jesus is sort of modeling the very things that we've been studying tonight. He is fully engaged with God. He is persistently praying this prayer again and again and again. And he's recognizing that he's praying to God. And so he says over and over again, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What's the result? Verse 40, when he came back, he again found them sleeping uh, because their eyes were heavy and they didn't know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. That's an amazing moment, actually. What is Jesus begging God for? Please don't let me be crucified. Please don't let me face my betrayer. Please let me somehow escape this fate, which I even now know is coming across the the valley here to the garden to arrest me and take me. Please. And yet, when the moment of crisis comes, when they come to arrest him, when he faces the temptation, he says, let's go face it. Get up. It's time to meet the challenge that God has given us. Jesus wants you to have a regular and engaged prayer life because he wants you to be protected. Your prayer life doesn't actually add anything to God. Jesus wants you to be protected. Well, wait a minute. How is this a protective prayer? Jesus prayed not to be crucified, and the next story is he gets taken away, arrested, mocked, beaten, and finally put on a cross. How is this a story of protection? That's almost... The only way we could possibly look at it, and from the fleshly point of view, that's almost the only way we can look at prayer. Prayer succeeds. Prayer is successful if it protects me from physical harm, if it grants me material benefits, if it it helps me avoid physical or emotional pain. that's, That's the measuring stick by which Ordinary humans are are, are naturally inclined to measure the success of prayer. And and by that measuring stick, this is not a a successful prayer. This looks like a failed prayer. But it is a successful prayer. Hebrews chapter 5 says, Jesus was heard, he cried out, and he was heard. Why does the writer of Hebrews say that? Why is this a successful prayer? Well, it's certainly true that the angels came to comfort him, but but that's not even what the writer of Hebrews says, and that's not even what the writer of Mark is emphasizing. For Jesus, there are many things that are worse than physical death and physical suffering. What in Jesus' mind is worse than the fate he's about to suffer? A fate worse than this death is what? For Jesus. Not doing God's will. Thank you, Howard. Preach on, brother. That's exactly right. I'm glad you said it big and loud, too. That was good. Not doing God's will is what Jesus is far more concerned about than about what happens to his body and what happens to him physically. He wants more than he wants to keep on living. He wants to be God's person on earth, to do and be what God made him to do and be. Jesus wants you to have a regular and engaged prayer life, because by that means you will be protected from temptation, so that you also can do and be what God created you to do and be. God means to make you into the image of His Son, Jesus. He means to put you into the battle and to have you fight and win His victories for Him. What that's going to look like from the world's point of view may vary tremendously. Some of you may be destined in God's plan for great worldly glory. Some of you may be destined for great worldly suffering. What matters is neither of those consequences, but whether or not you do what God asks you to do and that you become what God is trying to help you become. God wants you to pray regularly. God wants you to pray with your mind fully engaged so that He can transform you. If you need to respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ, created by his sacrifice on the cross so that your sins can be washed away and so a new life can be given to you. You can be baptized tonight if that's your choice, if you've been studying and thinking about that and haven't ever taken that step, or if you need prayers or other kind of help we can offer, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.